welcome to another edition of the Alan Smithy Podcast. Once again, I'm here with my friends, Michael Thomas and Katie Henson. They are in the West Coast. I am in Nashville. We made it past NAB, gang. Welcome. Thanks for returning. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. I've just recovered at this point. The antibiotics are done. I can wear shoes again. It's been a long road since NAB. Yeah, I'm Concrad ha- is real, man. Concrad is real. I'm happy to be back and be recovered. The previous episode, we talked a lot about NAB. Michael and I were there. Katie watched it from afar. So we had some good insight into what was going on. So if you don't know about NAB, check out that previous episode. But since then, all the new stuff going on, I think first thing we got to mention is writer's strike. I think for a lot of people in this industry, that is the biggest news. Um, you guys are out in LA, so you see the picket lines, you see what's going on out there. I mean, my hope is that production continues at some point. So all my shows on Netflix and Hulu don't go away, but I think that may happen. I think, Katie, you have a picket line right outside your, close to where you work. That's right. I work in Burbank. There's a lot of noise going on. It sounds like we're in New York. It's a little familiar from having lived there for some time. It's, it's definitely as disrupting productions right now. And I think these things happen and it has to happen. But I think in this case, why it's reasonably significant and having an impact on the industry. And let me just say, strikes are supposed to have an impact. That is the whole point. It's meant to be disruptive. But what's happening right now is that a lot of productions have shut down because of the strike, not just because they don't have writers on set right now, but because other unions don't want to cross the picket line. And that is absolutely reasonable position to take. Uh, we do have a lot of disruption to productions, and that means a lot of productions are having to slow down or shut down or go on hiatus for a while. Last time we had a writer strike about 10 years ago, it went on for 100 days. And in this case, there's a good chance that it may overlap with the Directors Guild strike as well. So there's a good chance that this may go on for some time. It's a little unfortunate for a lot of people because this is also coming on the heels of massive layoffs across the industry. And so there's a lot of people out of work right now, and there's not a lot of people hiring until the strikes are resolved. So I do hope that that some resolution can be found quickly that really does benefit all sides and that people can get back to work. I've never been in a union. I don't know a ton about what's going on there. I mean, just an AP news article mentions what their writers are asking for. And this is a very broad overview here. Increased pay, better residuals, staffing requirements, shorter exclusivity deals, and then uh, some sort of assurance on AI, which I think anything in this day and age, there's some sort of AI component to it. But yeah, I'm like you. I, I hope it gets resolved quickly and fairly because writers are important. And without the writers, then we have no shows at all. Michael, what's your take on the strike? Folks have been bracing for this for several months, if not more at this point. And many studios and productions have already had plans to push unscripted because you can get by, and I hate to use that phrase, but the reliance on writers is a little bit less with unscripted. Take that however you may. Did the rise of unscripted, sorry to interrupt, did that correspond with the last writer's strike that a lot more came along during that period? Or or did it, it may just be that matter of unscripted is much cheaper to produce. So I think studios probably like spending less money for programming. Yeah, Unscripted has been around, obviously, much longer than that. I don't think back in 07, it helped at all. But we were at, I don't want to say the heyday of Unscripted, but that was still the predominant TV cash cow 15 years ago, give or take. It didn't help, but I don't think it was exacerbated because of it. Hey, pop quiz, you guys. Longest running Unscripted show on television. The Simpsons. Oh, no, wait, that's very scripted. That's just the longest running show. 60 Uh, Minutes. (laughs) 
that, no, no, I think that's a little bit scripted. <laughs> I don't know, Katie. What's the answer? Antiques Roadshow. Oh my gosh, that has been on forever. It's been on since the 1950s. Wow. And we, I bet we all know people that's been on it. I know three different people that's been on it, like actually on the broadcast. What did they call it? Right? Because the term unscripted, it really didn't get popularized until I think early mid 90s. What was it called before? I don't, I don't know. know. <laughs> like, that, that's not even a documentary style no, show either. I don't think we really call it anything. Yeah. I don't think we really made that distinction because I think the scripted stuff was just drama. I'll tell you what, though, Antiques Roadshow is entertaining. That's why it's lasted so long. It will suck you in, unlike a lot of stuff out there on television. I admit it. Whenever I flip by it or it's, hey, it's going to be on Antiques Roadshow, you end up watching the whole darn thing. And they'll show reruns that are like 20 years old, and they're still intriguing. Anyway, we'll revisit the writer's strike, I'm sure, once it gets resolved. But the other big piece of news, at least in my world, was the announcement that Apple is bringing Final Cut and Logic both to the iPad, which I think... Not shocking, but at the same time, I don't know. It's I don't I think it was a little bit shocking because Final Cut has been so slow in development over the last few years. Interesting to see how much how useful it will be. Like what I don't know, Katie, in your world, how useful is the iPad as a production or post tool? No, it's a huge part of what we do. We use iPads for all kinds of things. We use them for remote reviews. We use them for remote reviews of Daily's review a lot, particularly on set. We have them for scripts. We have iPads that are secure that hold scripts. So iPads are everywhere. We also use them for really cool things like real-time previs, right? We use them for AR on set. We don't use them for editing in my world. But <laughs> but yeah, no, I, iPads have definitely become a massive tool within the industry across all parts of it. I have to say, I did notice that this does coincide with the worst editor ever on, on Twitter. I think noting something that, that now they were editing on their Apple Watch. Oh yeah, that was funny. It was like a mouse running right? premiere. I think editing on an iPad's a bit of a I don't I'm not sure what even term to use. Like it's functionality, it's great to have it and I think it's silly not to have it because like LumaFusion is it has been around for a long time. Mm-hmm. Very powerful editing application. Of course, we have Resolve on there now, which is just mm-hmm almost the same application, whereas it looks like with the Final Cut Pro, they really retooled it a good bit for the interface. The usefulness is limited if you can't plug in external storage, right. which you know is to be seen. It's limited when you have to literally use the touch interface and can't use a mouse because things are just harder to do sometimes. But the idea that you can shoot on the iPad and then edit it right there, which we've been doing on iPhones for quite a while and iPads too, but I think that's where it's going to be a sweet spot. But I think it remains to be seen how useful these things truly are going to be, but I'm, it's good they're going to have them there. I've been trying to get my kids to use it. It's a little bit like work sometimes. So what's interesting about the iPads having Final Cut Pro is that for a few years, I have done little guest spots in middle schools and high schools teaching kids about filmmaking. And one of the things that I do with those kids is I do a mini version of a 48-hour film competition with them over the course of a morning or an afternoon. And I give them iPads. And on that iPad, they shoot and edit their films. And you can essentially have one tool in the hand of somebody and it enables them to create content. And I think that's really powerful. I've said this before, but the more we can put the professional tools in the hands of everybody, the more creativity, the more barriers are broken down, and really the more voices can be heard. And I think it's actually cool that we're seeing more of these tools being put onto iPads. 
Yeah, I did not see as many people at NAB shooting on iPads as I thought, because that seems like a trade show is the perfect place where you shoot it real quickly on the device and you can edit it on the device and upload right from the device. And I was watching out for that. I did see a few, but not as many as I had anticipated seeing. But I think well, maybe that's just... Good, they don't have as good lenses necessarily. They're a little bit unwieldy. And if you can airdrop your content from your phone to your iPad and then cut on your iPad, then why not? I think that audience at NAB is also, since it's very high end, it may mm. feel a little bit like, oh, if I don't have a cinema lens shooting my interview, then I'm not doing it right. But Michael, what's your thoughts? Do you have iPad editing with Final Cut Pro? Do you have that? No, I do not. But what I found interesting is that there was this immediate backlash because it's subscription. That's a big and, one. And the kind of top three points of that Final Cut editors always had was, I bought it when it came out and I haven't had to pay a cent since then. And it's less than a cup of coffee. It's $4.99, right? A month, if I'm not mistaken. But the just in principle, the amount of backlash online of, I'm going to move to Resolve now because I'm not going to pay $4.99 a month. I just found that very interesting. And also to the fact that if you didn't know this was coming, you're not paying attention. A few yeah. years ago, Apple changed the registration for the Final Cut Pro trademark overseas, if I'm not mistaken. So it could be categorized as a, or be utilized in a SaaS way. So software as a service. And that was changed specifically. So you could run this in the cloud or sell it or license it in a SaaS model. So if you didn't know this was coming, you just weren't paying attention. Well, correct me if I'm wrong, but has Apple not actually said over the last number of quarters or years that they're really ramping up their subscription revenue and they've actually seen the revenue from subscriptions pretty dramatically start to increase? And so I don't, yeah, it, it, I think you're right. If it was a shock to you, there've been blinders on, you haven't been paying attention. The script, this, unfortunately, the subscription thing is not going away. And you can either be a stalwart and use your CS6 license from Adobe, <laughs> but it's not changing. And all you have to do is look at the, you know, earnings reports from all the companies that transition to the kind of rental month to month model and the revenue has just increased. So it's not going anywhere. It's, I liken it to uh, when our parents were growing up, right? There wasn't meal delivery services. Everyone had to cook. They had to go to the grocery store almost every day or every other day. And that was just how it was. And then suddenly, not suddenly, but we then had meal delivery services. And it was a complete switch. I remember when that came out, I was thinking, wow, I'm not an adult. If I can't cook for myself, I'm not an adult, right? <laughs> and, but it changed. It's changed everything in terms of how people prepare meals and get that delivered to their house. So if you're not willing to accept that things are going to change, <laughs> uh, you're in a world of hurt. And I think it was just inevitable that Apple was going to make this transition. Yeah. And I would not be shocked if desktop Final Cut and desktop Logic go subscription because Apple doesn't make a lot of desktop tools anymore. You know, they. I'm not going to be shocked either way, but of course, they don't even call it the iWork suite anymore with pages and numbers and mm -hmm. Keynote. Like those went free and they're all, and they can work in the cloud. You can actually use them in the cloud in the browser now. That has stayed free. You know, I don't know. Maybe the desktop stuff stays where it is and anything on the iPad becomes a, a subscription. I work on the iPads. It's not a subscription either. So I, I don't know what's going to happen. Katie, I want to ask you something, and this may devolve into a much longer conversation for another podcast, but do you think that this move to the iPad for Final Cut Pro changes the trajectory or where we lump Final Cut Pro in, in terms of being a quote unquote professional tool? 
do you think this makes it more, pardon the expression, down market, as opposed to focusing on the pro portion of the name? To be honest, I don't think it's going to change anything. I think they're leaning into the customer base that they know they have. And there's the right tool for every job. And I think Final Cut Pro, because of all of the various things that it has going on and the way that it's being designed and the direction that they're taking that product, they have found a market. And that market, I think what they're doing is they are serving their market. They've decided that they know that it's a long road and there's not a lot of payoff to get on a big movie or whatever. The union editors tend to be the old school avid folks with a handful of premier people smattered in there. The, and Final Cut Pro just never really get made in roads there, right? Once Seven went away. And, and I think where it has made inroads, they've done the smart thing, listened to those users and kept developing in the direction they want. And so I think everybody's over that snobbery around it and realize that it's the tool for one kind of job. And like I use things at home to cut my home stuff quick and dirty that I wouldn't use professionally because it's not the right tool for the job. That's the reality of it. And to be honest, I think we're all over that whole, ooh, Final Cut's not for professionals thing. Yes, it is for professionals. Just there's professionals that do different jobs. The professional isn't defined by the budget of your production. I think we need to get over that idea and actually give some props to Apple for realizing who their customer base is and listening to them and developing a product that is amazing for their customer base. Yeah, the snobs are going to be snobs forever and they'll rarely be converted. So if you're too snobby to enjoy Final Cut, then continue with what you're doing and just, I think sometimes just shut up about it. And it's, mm -hmm. for God's sake, it's been out for what, 10 years now? Right. If you're still mad about Final Cut, then yeah, uh, then you got, you a, need lot, to you got a lot more time on your hands. Yeah. <laughs> Adobe has made an interesting announcement at Google I.O., uh, <laughs> was Google they, I.O. was this previous week. Is that right? That's I, right. I think, yeah. Okay. So, so yeah, I, I did not see anything about Google I.O. than it happened. So, yeah. But sorry, you saw the thing about Adobe. You were like, right? You mean. Well, I, I did. I don't understand yeah. what it is, though. I don't see those two companies as being together on anything, but. Well, the know. announcement was that Firefly is going to be coming to Bard. So Adobe Express is going to be part of that. And essentially, they're saying it will be the generative AI partner for Bard doing their text to image stuff. So previously, you know, Microsoft was doing image creator around Bing and it's becoming a bit of a thing, right? So a lot of these companies you know, that we use for search are also now doing generative AI within both their search and in within their image search. And so now essentially it's all going together. So Dali was going with Microsoft and Google has announced that Adobe is partnering with them, which is cool, I think. Michael, what do you think? I love it. I don't see any any negatives other than the, the inevitable backlash of where the training is coming from, which sure. is always a point of concern. But I don't see a downside to it at all. I love it. I think it's a great tool. It's super cool. What this one also allows you to do is that you can generate an image using Firefly and then modify it using Adobe Express. Interesting. Now, when they came out with Firefly, Adobe was very much trumpeting the fact that they were training the models properly. Like they weren't scraping stuff. They were like people, I don't know, they didn't give permissions, not the right term, but they were doing it differently than some of the other services. And it feels like if you're going to partner with Google, 
then some of that may go out the window. Like, do we know, are they still going to keep this sort of a more proper approach to training their models? I think Adobe would be stupid not to. I think that they've differentiated themselves by being as committed as they possibly can to providing a safe model. I think they've, again, they have done what I just mentioned Apple did. They listen to their customers. They know that in M&E, it's a sensitive topic. And Mm -hmm. so if they are going to stay within the media and entertainment industry with their tool set being used professionally, they would have to take this seriously because professionally folks are pretty nervous, uh, particularly about IP concerns. Who owns the image if you have generated it with the generative AI tool? And none of that's really been settled yet. I think they've been really smart to go in that direction and they would be really stupid to devolve from it. I would be very surprised if that happened. That said, Google I.O., there were a lot of, everything was generative AI on their announcements. There was some really awesome announcements, really awesome, generative AI, everything. But being Google, I think some of them certainly raised some privacy questions. But that said, I think with every free service, you pay for that with your data. Oh, yeah. But there are some pretty, pretty cool ones. What I think the certainly take a look at what's out there. I think the one that I thought was really interesting that kind of went under the radar a little bit was a thing called Project Tailwind, which I thought that was probably one of the least splashy things because it is still pretty, pretty new. But it's essentially an AI-powered notebook tool that it takes your notes, it goes through your files from Google Drive, and then it can essentially create a private AI model that passes all of your information and you can use it. It's essentially like taking something like Notion that a lot of people use, but it will organize all your information however you want. What it looks like is you can essentially have a Google Drive folder full of stuff and say, take this tailwind, all right, now find me this, tell me this, what's that? If you're studying, if you're trying to put something together, you're writing a paper, I mean, that sort of stuff would be amazing. Certainly, if you come out with a documentary, you have a bunch of information in your Google Drive folders from all of your transcripts, there would be just, there's so many cool uses for that. I think it's pretty cool. It can automatically organize all of your notes, summarize your notes, it, it's that's that's awesome. It's, so I guess that's and you may have said this like a personal AI where you're training it on a very small set of data that is your own, and Correct. then you can use their thing w- with whatever well, it may be able to well, do. Your own, no, because it is what is within your Google Drive. Now you will likely be collecting things from wherever onto your Google I, Drive. I see, okay, but it is still your little personal assistant, essentially. Michael, what do you think? This is your jam, right? Like It is for a myriad of reasons, but I think what most people need to realize is that the model has already been built and what's being done is it's being, and you can use different parlance here, whether you want to call it embedding or fine tuning, but it's taking the understanding of text and speech and then focusing it on your direct data. So it already has the ability to converse and summarize and all the things that we like ChatGPT to do, but it's hyper-focused on your content. And that's what makes it personal. But there is already some underlying training that's already been done to get it to this level. Let's say you hired a secretary, right? Yeah, secretary's already got to know how to type and how to use the phone and all the other things that a normal human can do, but it's then focused on exactly what that job at hand is. 
Now, Michael, I know you've been looking at some services that take AI and then integrate it into a lot of different things. I can remember one that we were texting about that was literally almost like a personal assistant that does many different type of things. It feels like whoever can crack that code to bring AI on a much more personal level to help people in their day-to-day productivity, day-to-day life is going to have something really special. I don't know if that's what Tailwind is, but One of the things we have to contend with is that there's a new grift every other day. There's every day there's a God. And if any of you still use Twitter and the, I found 10 new AI tools that'll change your world. It's just all, it's rampant. But the thing is that there's so many tools out there that are doing so many similar things and Mm -hmm. all of them are jumping on the AI bandwagon. So we don't know what's going to shake out. We don't know Mm -hmm. what is going to be here for the long run. And as you pointed out a few minutes ago, Katie, your data When you start using all these different AI Mm -hmm. services, unless you read the fine print, what you're putting in there could be used to train a model, right? We heard about folks, what was it, Samsung, that were putting Mm -hmm. proprietary code into ChatGPT to debug code, and they ended up getting fired because that that IP was being used to them train. Long story short is we need to see what's going to shake out and what services are actually going to be around Mm -hmm. so we know what exactly can be used moving forward. Oh, absolutely. I mean, that Samsung thing absolutely spooked a lot of big companies. And that is definitely setting those big companies back a long way. There's one more thing that I just really want to quickly just point out from IO is that because a lot of people don't see it as relevant to us, but it is, is Car Connect. And people are like, wait, cars, really? So connected car experience is something that Google has been working on. But the thing is that most of the big companies, most of the big entertainment companies have also been really looking at cars. So cars are kind of the last bastion of having an audience that's sitting in one place with nothing to do for a long period of time. Now, Except drive and stay alive. I'm not talking about the driver. I'm talking about the passengers. But with self-driving cars, there is also a look to the future that, okay, so the car is driving itself, then what are you going to do all day? So it begins with charging stations. There's definitely a lot of talk about like, how do we provide people entertainment during while they're charging? And then there's also how do we equip cars with the entertainment systems that we can certainly feed stuff to? Now, remember, you can't put the cart before the horse and start creating entertainment for something that doesn't exist. So a lot of companies are partnering with car companies. Sony's partnered with car companies. So now everybody's getting in there, putting entertainment into cars beyond music. And so it's definitely one to watch for the future of of entertainment. I think a lot of the studios, as well as other tech companies, are looking at partnering with vehicle makers, car makers. So the fact that Google is also leaning into that is very interesting. Now, obviously, there's new features for cars. There's, There's some of the Google stuff that they can do, not just maps, but they're making maps smarter. But I think it's just interesting. Every time you see cars... In this stuff, you go, oh, look, there's another step towards this idea of really bringing entertainment into the car experience. Well, yeah. So this is probably like taking Android Auto, which is currently available, and it'll mm-hmm. be like their maybe their next generation of Android Auto because you take Android Auto and something like Apple's CarPlay, which it gives you a much better interface for your phone, but without the phone, you don't have CarPlay, if you will. But I think this is sure. probably like the built-in. It didn't. Didn't GM had announced that their next generation EVs will not include CarPlay. 
and we'll go all, all in on Google, which is probably what some of this stuff is. Yeah, and so they've announced things in terms of baby steps. They've announced things now that they're updating Android Auto and they're sort of adding YouTube to cars. They're adding video conferencing to cars and gaming to cars. So it's these steps that are going and it's fully integrated. It's not plugging your phone in, it's in the car. And so I think there are, those steps are really being made towards having access to entertainment within a car because it certainly is going to be a thing. Yeah, nothing like having everybody in the car watching movies while the driver's trying to drive. And then, like, oh, what is that? I'm a very like anti um, use of your phone in your car because it's, uh, you know, you're driving, you're, you're trying to save your own life and the life of your passengers at a three tons of metal going 75 miles an hour down the interstate. But, you know, I would still have a manual transmission if I didn't have to commute. So that's my life in a car. It's an engine, transmission, that's all I care about. Michael, do you have a car play or anything in your like that in your car? Android Auto? Uh, You're an Android guy. Yeah, I'm an Android guy. And my car is 10 years old and it doesn't have as, as many entertainment features as I would like, especially music. So namely what I'm mostly what I'm doing is launching Spotify or Pandora on my phone and having that go via Bluetooth to my speakers. And then I'm using Waze for navigation as I don't have kids. It's normally just me in the car. <laughs> so this is a little bit off my radar. There you go. There you go. I think that when you talk about using your car and using AIs and stuff, one thing that we have not talked about in a while that was our topic of this week, was talking about the metaverse. Now, Katie, you had mentioned to us earlier in the week, you said, hey, I think we need to talk about the metaverse. I'm going to let you take lead on this because I've got a couple of strong opinions, but <laughs> I want to hear your thoughts on it. I think a lot of people now, if you say, whatever happened to that metaverse thing, they go, I told you, I told you it wasn't going to be a thing. And there's been a couple of articles out and, and recently talking about how metaverse is dead, all these companies are closing their metaverse divisions. And I wanted to talk about that because I have some opinions. I know Michael is going to have some opinions on this from what we know about how technology moves through its cycles. And so I wanted to bring up that discussion. I think it's so funny when you mentioned metaverse, people are like, oh, yeah, I remember that. I never saw it. It was never <laughs> it was in only it, a year but I ago. It. it always felt like it's coming. It, for me, it never felt like it fully launched. It didn't like, though. Like, That's the whole point. It wasn't going to launch at that time. And I think this me, is the thing that people don't, that people don't get. Let me ask a quick question. This is what I sometimes understand about the metaverse. Distinguish between the metaverse and the headset that you have to shove onto your face and wear around. You, you don't. can't have there's, one not, without the other. No, that's right? not true. None of that okay. is true. None of that. That's my problem. Yeah. Explain sure. this to me then. I think to understand what's happened to the metaverse, you have to understand the idea that the way that startup culture works is that you have to hype something up with the hope of it in order to get funding to build it. And essentially what was happening last year was that these companies were doing exactly what is usually done behind closed doors. But unfortunately, those companies happen to be some of the biggest entertainment and communications companies in the world, which meant everybody saw it. Now, normally that happens within a small kind of little window of Silicon Valley where somebody is hyping up the next billion dollar thing. Everybody's going to be doing this, right? And so that you can get investment, you get people to believe it, you get people to buy into the potential of something that doesn't exist yet, right? That is often just an idea or a concept. You get them to buy into it so that you have investment in order to build it. 
Now, people were very clear and companies were very clear, most of them were anyway, there's always going to be some marketing hype, but most of them were pretty clear that it's not a thing yet. We don't even know what it is. We just know that there's a very vague concept of what it could be and we want to start exploring it. And that was essentially what was happening. And so there was a lot of hype about, yes, it's the future. Yes, it's absolutely going to be a thing. But I think what was missed was that it's not going to be a thing tomorrow. Don't expect it tomorrow. And in the world of tech development, there is a thing called the Gartner hype curve or the Gartner hype cycle. And what we saw was the very beginning of that. It's sort of like a bell curve with a really long tail. And what you get is you get up to this really big hype at the very top of it. Everyone goes, oh, this is going to be the next big thing. This is super, super exciting. And then you got what you call the trough of disillusionment. When people realize it's not quite a thing yet, it's the alpha version of something. And, and then they go, oh, that was shit. And then they forget about it for a while. And when they forget about it, the people who are actually developing the thing just move along more slowly. And until eventually it gets to a point where it's a thing. And so we had that hype thing last year. We're in the trough of disillusionment right now where the people are actually getting to work. So the public perception of the trough of disillusionment is happening, but the people who are doing the work are actually getting to it. That's, that is the general background that I have. Michael, what, do, what is your take on this? I was hoping you were going to elaborate on Scott's question is separating the helmet mm-hmm. <laughs> helmet from the metaverse. Yeah, the, hel- the helmet from the metaverse. So the metaverse doesn't necessarily have to use the helmet. There are and there will be technological advances that mean that we don't have to use the helmet. If we were going to jump into the metaverse if it existed today, we'd be probably in we'd be in a headset because that is the technology that exists today. But I think what most people were saying was that it probably won't be a headset thing because people don't really like it. Maybe early, early versions of it as we're developing what this thing is will have to be in a headset. But by the time we get to a thing that looks like the meta, what we think the metaverse is today, and it will probably be called something else and we'll go, oh, that was the metaverse thing when it happens. <laughs> like I always say, VR, I think the VR is the thing that leads us to the thing. And, and I don't think it's actually the thing. And I think you can say that about VR and metaverse too. Scott, does that kind of answer your question a little bit? It, it does. And I think it actually illustrates something that Katie, I think that you're really good at. One reason I enjoy having these discussions with you is that you're looking far beyond the moment or even mm-hmm. like next year moment, because what I was going to say that I think one of the problems that happened with it was when you have Facebook and the CEO owner, whatever, of Facebook, Zuckerberg, one of the pretty smart dude, rich guy, when he bets the company basically on it, changes the name of the company. And yeah. how can the general public not be like, oh, this has to be the next great thing? And that's what just really shocked me that a smart person would basically pivot in such a grand scale like that. Because he needed investment. And I think that's really like what I explained before. That is what people do when they want to develop new technology is they have to make these grand announcements because they have to get investment. And he really needed folks to believe in the metaverse so that he could spend the next 10 years working on what it might be. And that's what a lot of companies were doing at that time. But like I said, unfortunately, many of those companies, because they are the largest communications companies in the world, everybody saw it. And usually these kind of grand proclamations about the future and the future is now, and this is a multi-billion dollar industry, 
you know, happen behind closed doors or at least within circles that the general public in the world doesn't really see quite as visibly. And so the way that, that the hype cycle moved with metaverse was a very extreme version of it. And certainly those expectations and disillusionment went certainly within the public, public psyche. Well, but would you say that it was an extreme version of the hype cycle and it couldn't live up to it because we're not there yet, but AI mm-hmm. in a sense got this extreme hype cycle that has been able to live up to it because it certainly took the wind out of the metaverse sales and it feels like AI is living up to this this great hype. No, AI as we know it today is at the other side of the hype cycle. Wait, so where on the curve does that mean? Where are we falling on that curve? The plateau of productivity. Okay. There but are that's the five a good thing, stages right? of the hype cycle. So the peak of inflated expectations was probably, well, I was looking at that probably around 2014, Michael, was the time when everybody first started saying that we're going to lose our jobs to AI. I think that was probably around about that time. Cognitive <clears throat> services. Yes, there you go. You coined that term cognitive services, Michael. And I think that was the time when I started doing talks about how don't you worry about this. It's not the thing that you think it is. So you're saying that the AI cycle, it feels like we are brand new into it, that we are right almost at the technology trigger. No, we're we're way into it. Yeah. The technology trigger was a really long time ago. And that was the stage where it was first introduced to the public. People freaked out. It was a whole thing around 2014-ish. I think that was when that sort of started happening. I was saying video editors are going to be out of a job within two years. That was about then. And like I said, we had the phase two peak of inflated expectations, which is exactly that, which is the time when I always say, what do I say? We overestimate technology. And then the trough of disillusionment was when everyone went, oh, it's actually not that good. That's fine, whatever. And it becomes reality. But then the slope of enlightenment was when everyone kind of went back to realizing what it could do. And we started introducing AI into our tools in a smart way. And we started getting used to it and going, oh, these things are actually coming. Oh, look what Avid can do with scripts and look what we can do with this. And then the plateau of productivity is when it becomes mature and we go, oh, my God, this is what it really is. When I say it's the thing before the thing, right? What we yep. saw 10 years ago was the thing before the thing, which everyone was like, it's not that good, right? Eh, it's fine. It's not that great. It's not that new. And now it's the thing, which is generative AI, right? And that's the thing where the product is mature. People are like, oh, shit. And it's widespread across the market. And there's always that time when the hype dies down, the nerds go and start doing their work. And because they've gotten the hype is the sales guys getting the funding. And then, and they got to make that hype. And then the nerds get to work and then we get that plateau some years later where we get the thing. So if you think about the metaverse last year, we had the hype, the sales, all of that. Now the nerds are going to get to work. I think when you look at the, and I'll put this in the show note links, this thing about this, the hype cycle, when you look at sort of the illustration on the curve on this link, I'm going to put, it feels like the slope of enlightenment can be a very, a very long. steep slope or a very long slope. Mm-hmm. And like the, the AI slope of enlightenment, it, it was a bit steeper than perhaps the metaverse slope of enlightenment is going to be. We That's don't know. Kind of, kind of feels we'll like. see. You don't have to look far to see examples of this in recent history in our industry. And mm-hmm. if we look at red camera, Mm-hmm. We look at camera to cloud. 
a lot of these things have gone through the exact stages that Katie's pointed out. So I encourage oh, everyone yeah. who has never heard of the uh, curve to actually look into some of the, the bigger movements in our industry over the past 20 years, and you'll see that our industry is ripe with it. Yeah, I kind of feel like the iPad is still going through that because it hasn't really found its pl- I mean, I know we use it a lot, but it feels like it's hardware that doesn't yet have the right kind of software to really live up to it. We're trying to shoehorn sometimes some desktop apps onto an iPad and we're kind of limiting file structures and connectivity. Like it, I feel like it's, I don't know what, at what point it is in this cycle yet, but I don't know if it's reached its plateau of productivity yet. Again, the iPad would be under probably tablets or even handheld computer devices, right? So you think about it within a larger scale of technology, a larger kind of container of things, and you'll see that it is one of the things that is being developed. And you can sort of look at where you think this might be. And a lot of the time, if you're looking at the hype cycle and you look at a thing like we just talked about with AI, go back, just go back in time and think about, because often, like I say, it's not the thing that we see today may not be the thing that it was 10 years ago. The, the 10 years ago was the thing before the thing or the thing that led to the thing. Sometimes we've just got to look backwards in order to see what trends look like and really use that to start predicting what things might look like in the future. So one last question on this, Katie. Do you think that the concept of the metaverse will come back and it is something that we will be a part of? Let's see, it's been what? The metaverse was three years, right? Uh, mm-hmm. From Facebook, two or three years. So are you saying in another seven years? I won't put a date on it, but I do think that the concept is going to be a thing. I think the concept of a persistent virtual world that includes payments that that is you know all around us all the time that is communal again all of these things I think that is going to be a thing and it probably won't look anything like Zuckerberg was saying it was going to look like or a lot of the pundits were saying it was going to look like because that was just their idea of what it might be based on the technology and ideas of today it was the Jetsons version of the future at that point and when we really when we get there we will barely recognize it as the metaverse we were talking about, but we'll go, oh, that's, this is the thing. So, anyway. I wonder if uh, perhaps, and perhaps it's something we'll, I'm sure we'll revisit this, but if a certain company that we know and love introduces their own headset that might make uh, the metaverse a bit more palatable or a bit more easy to work in or play in. I don't know. We'll wait and see. We'll just watch it carefully. I, I guess we shall see. Let's table that one up until until perhaps that time. You know, we always have our one cool thing as part of this particular podcast. And let's wrap this one up with the one cool things. I don't mind going first if you yeah, guys don't want to indulge me. Yeah. So mine is something that's been out for a long time. It's a software product called Command Post, and it's commandpost.io. It's a utility that was written by Chris Hawking down in Australia, and it began life as a software way to supplement Final Cut Pro and some things that Final Cut didn't do. And if you go to the website, you can read the origin story that I was complaining one time about a Final Cut thing. And so he made this application basically to shut me up. But it has evolved into being able to do many different things, many different workflow things you can do through the app. But one thing it can do, it can actually control control surfaces, such as a stream deck, a tour box, a loop deck, game pads, and things like that. You can literally adapt these in map settings to be able to use them while you're editing. It's been around for a while, but the reason I want to point it out today is because I am working on a job where I'm remoting into a PC from my Macintosh using, I think it's called, is it HPZ Connect? Mm. It's like this remote software, HPZ Central Remote Boost is Mm -hmm. the software. 
And what I cannot do is I cannot use my loop deck or my or my toolbox or any of these apps. I couldn't use the hardware because if I had a command that was like, say, shift command A, going through this remote connecting software could not properly send those modifier keys to execute it on the remote machine. You know, I couldn't even do like shift something. And this was using the basic software that like loop deck and toolbox. This was using their software. So Chris said to try command post. And what happens when I set up command post and I go to map a, a shortcut, say it's, you know, shift command A, you map the control trigger in command post to work with, say, the loop deck. But there is an option in there where he's got an alternate way of sending the commands. And it was mainly used to work with the Blender application. But when I use that alternate way of sending the commands, suddenly all of my control surface shortcuts will work and execute through this remote software I'm connecting to the, uh, the post house's PC with. So any editor out there who's working uh, remotely, having to remote into a facility through some of these, these connecting softwares, like maybe Jump or HPZ Central Remote Boot, and you're working with a, with a control service and you can't get it to execute right, try command post and see if that will work for you. Michael, I know you know what I'm talking about here. Yeah, I've actually uh, have it running quite a bit. I have a loop deck that I don't use nearly as much as I should. And the software is just atrocious. And uh, command post uh, has been able to fill in that gap for a lot of the functions that I'd like to use the uh, loop deck for. Sweet. What's your one cool thing? AI. Yay, more AI stuff, Michael. Great. <laughs> the where I believe things are going is the localized models, right? Not having to rely on the cloud and having your own localized model to do with whatever you please. That's what's really going to change this industry mm -hmm. and make and bring AI kind of to the masses who don't want to have to pay for it. And to that end, uh, there's always been software to bring stable diffusion or other models to your desktop, but it's always been text to image. There's now a kind of fork from that by a user by the name of Ooga Booga. So O-B-A-B-O-G-A, -A, and they have a product called Text Generation Web UI, which allows you to load models that have been trained or built and fine tune it locally and even build your own models. And it allows you to use it locally. So you don't have to pay to uh, use ChatGPT4 or any other paid services. You now can download models from Hugging Face, which is a very common mm -hmm. place to get models. And you can even get data sets from Hugging Face and create your own model. It does require a decent amount of GPU power. I was about uh, to ask that. How much grunt do you need? It, it really comes down to how many parameters are in the model. Right. If you're doing something like a 7 billion parameter model, you can run that on just about any GPU, but the results are not going to be that good because there's just not a large enough sample size. What we're seeing is 13 billion parameters. I think that's going to take a 12 gig GPU, a 3080 or a 4070 or 4090, somewhere along those lines. But it will allow you to, like I said, build your own model. And I think that is what's going to change things when you don't have to rely on a third party and you don't have to pay to use these models. So we'll put That's the link cool. in show notes, but Ooga Booga <laughs> is the user and the text generation web UI uh, is the software. Very cool. Hey, my one cool thing is also a generative AI thing. It's pretty cool. It's in beta right now. It's called writewithlikea.com. L-A-I-K-A, Lika is the tool. And it does what, I don't know, it does the thing that I've been waiting for these things to do, which is that you can take a little bit of something that you've written 
and you can train a model on in your voice to help you write. And awesome. so if you are somebody like me who sometimes gets a bit of writer's block and you re- really appreciate a little bit of a hand, that's essentially what it will do. It doesn't write the whole thing for you, it, but it will essentially help you along. So it can continue your thoughts for you. It can give you suggestions, but in your voice. Now, the free version actually has built-in voices right? So it has built in actually professional writers, famous writers, and um, they call them brains. So they're pre-trained. You can write with Jane Austen, they say. (laughs) But the paid version, which is actually $10 a month, $120 a year, not bad. Unlimited use of the public brains, which are the ones that are pre-trained on famous writers, but then in the community brains, other people's ones they've trained, and but also private brains and private characters. So you can also essentially start writing a character. You can invent a character. It will work with you on that character. It'll help develop that character for you. And the cool thing, you can it will also generate an image of that character for you. Wow. But really it's it's cool because you can actually work with your own voice, your own stuff. And it's like having a co-writer in the room. And sometimes that can be so useful, especially when you're feeling a little stuck. I think it's super cool. I love that idea of being able to have my own voice there and just to help me along. And I, I think it's, I think it's cool. Is it more for, for narrative, like fictional writing or is it for Okay. It is. I think it's intended more for that, for creative okay. writing. I am looking forward to trying it for all kinds of writing because I think once it's got your voice, then, I mean, I make presentations all the damn time. So I would love to try it for that sort of thing. You know, I write talks and presentations. I, I think that would be really helpful for me. You mentioned public brains. If you train it on your writing style, your voice, mm-hmm. if it's on a new topic, let's say technology, do these public brains have access to brains that have been trained on technology or the open internet is or no the public brains are again they're more like they what they appear to have is more like famous narrative writers it's not so much about topic it's more you can take a sci-fi writer you really like and get them to help you with your sci-fi writing essentially I see. um which i find far less interesting than one that can mimic my style and my voice and help me along there I don't think I would have quite as much fun writing along with my favorite writer. I would find that probably would end up sounding not like me, but like someone else. And I don't really think there's much value in that. At least I was doing fan fiction. There is that. But but I think what's really interesting about it is being able to take a small amount of my own writing and train my own private brain and work with it in order to develop my own writing. I think it'll cut a lot of time out for me. I think it'll make things a lot easier. And I think I love the idea that it will suggest things to me that maybe I won't have at first thought. So I think there's a lot of potential there. I'm pretty excited. It looks really cool. I like the idea of something like this for, I have hundreds of articles I've written over the years on post-production reviews and what, and be able to feed that in. Like, you know, it goes back to the um, AI, like giving us real world productivity gains. And I think that's a wonderful thing. Maybe an AI will edit this podcast. Kidding, no, we've got a, Chris is a great guy who does it for us. And he's, we appreciate him very much. Autopod. Let's save that for next time. We'll talk about Autopod. I'm going to test that out. That may be my one cool thing next time. Thanks for listening to the Alan Smithy Podcast. This is Scott Simmons here. I wanted to let our listeners know that we are about to take a pause for the summer. Our season one is over, so we're going to take a couple of months off, and we're going to return back in the fall with season two of the Alan Smithy Podcast with myself 
Katie Henson and Michael Thomas. Yeah. All right. Have a good one. Sounds great. Thanks again for listening. We'll see you in the fall. Bye.